welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Able, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, hone your message, and make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the phrase, telling the story through a lens, which is the heart of Camera Ready. My guest for this episode, Michael Nigro, is an award-winning filmmaker, six-time Emmy-nominated writer-director, and multimedia journalist who tells powerful stories through every kind of lens imaginable, from still photography to film and video. You have seen Michael's work, including unforgettable images of the January 6th insurrection, the Caldor Fire, Standing Rock, Charlottesville, Virginia, COVID-19 workers, Occupy Wall Street, and the migrant caravan in Tijuana. You may have also enjoyed the 45 episodes of Brain Games Michael directed for Nat Geo, among an amazing and diverse body of work that I'm super excited to talk about. And as Michael says, he will go anywhere except shopping. (laughs) That tickles me no end. Welcome, Michael. Are you sure you want to do this? We've known each other a long time. I've been so excited to do this for ages. So I'm glad I kind of nailed you down to talk about storytelling through a lens. Well, I'm super happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. But um, I am really curious. I've long time been curious about this because there are two things I want to explore. Is like, when did you realize you were an exceptional storyteller? And when did you first pick up some kind of camera and realize you could tell stories through it? I started out as a writer. And right out of college, I kind of did the almost famous thing, moved to London and started writing about bands and following bands that I loved. And I was single out of college and just could go anywhere. And a couple of magazines would say, hey, do you want to go interview The Cure? Do you want to go Echo the Buddyman? Do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, let's go. And I loved it. It was back in the time when magazines operated three months out. So you had these wide, long leads to get the story. If it was a cover story, write it, submit it. But then it wouldn't be published for three months or two months. And then you wouldn't be paid for another month. So it was weird kind of trying to have a living, create a living by doing this, being a writer for rock papers, you know, basically trying to build a body work so you could live. Then I moved back to the States and I, and I loved telling the band stories. I really, I really loved interviewing and meeting new and diverse people. And um, when I got back uh, to the States, I just was like, is this all there is to my writing? And I went back to school to see if there's a different place that I could take my writing. And it was back in, you know, kind of, in a time where rock writing, you had to be snarky to get noticed. <laughs> and, and I loved music so much that I was like doing this thing where it was counterintuitive to me, where like to be snarky and, and, I, and I didn't like that. It started putting this damper on my love of music. I became kind of like this journalist. I was like, I'm gonna tear this band apart. And I stopped that right away. And then I, I went to grad school and just started, uh, went for fiction writing and started writing plays and short stories. And um, from there, uh, came to New York and started working in TV. Wait, can I jump in for one second? Because that transition, when you talk about writing fiction, you went from telling other people's stories to writing your own stories. I had always written fiction uh, ever since I was in, 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 I think that was kind of 
my bent was this kind of creative process that I, I would just write every day as, as uh, uh, in high school and in college. It's kind of where I was always kind of leaning towards being a writer and telling stories, whether they were fictional or interviews. I just, anything I could get my hands on, I wanted to be a diverse, um, whether journalist, storyteller, uh, creative writer. So you had a passion that was a superpower. I don't know if it was a superpower. No, I'm <laughs> telling you that it is. Don't okay. argue. No, I'm kidding. I just meant, like, but it is. It typically, our superpowers are these things that we're gifted at. You were given something and you did it. And what I think I, what I, think I noticed about myself, and actually in retrospect, looking back, is that I was always looking for something else. I was just naturally curious. It was like always, you know, diversify. Diversify in everything in your life in the things that you read, the things that you, the people that you know, rather than being such a creature of habit, as I think even in New York, we become creatures of habit, go to the same restaurants we just get. And I really think in terms of this in my entirety of my life, which is as a photojournalist now, always looking at the elsewhere. I mean, I think diversity, the Latin term is like the other way, like you look the other way. Mm. And, and, and I, so that's as a photojournalist and some of the things I do, like you have to keep looking, you just look around. And um, that's again, looking back as when I was writing a lot, I wanted to write plays. I wanted to write short stories. I wanted to write flash fiction. I wanted to write poetry. I want to write journalism pieces. I want to write scripts. And I would do all those things. And I think that kind of gave me a nice foothold when I ended up going into uh, television writing. Yeah. So how'd you, so you entered TV as a writer. I did. Okay. I did. And I came in on a show that, you know, uh, a lot of the people uh, that it was pop-up video um, was my first show at VH1. And it was this juggernaut of a hit that um, I would think I was the second team that was brought in on that first season. And oh, wait, can know, I interrupt one more time? Cause it mm -hmm. would, every time I mention pop-up video anywhere that I go, it, it is just, get such a warm reaction. Anybody who ever watched that has very strong, loving feelings and remembers when they were watching it, how they felt. So I just, cause I think people are curious, like how did you even get that job? Like what, what's the process getting through, you know, Tad Woody? Huh. <laughs> um, I believe I had met a number of friends, a number of people here in New York that worked for MTV and VH1. And um, I had called them and said, I just moved here. I'm looking for a gig. And they put me in touch with some people at, at VH1. And I just would go in and interview. Got it. So what did it take to be a pop-up video writer? You knew I, music. I, I knew a lot of music. I had a background in knowing bands and being able to write about bands and histories of bands. And, and actually having that kind of reporter sense of, you know, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. They gave me a Jacob Dylan one headlight video and said, here, write a pop-up video on that. That's your test. <laughs> and I did. And I was a little irreverent on it, knowing it would never go to air and just wanted to make someone laugh. And Tad and Woody and, uh, had seen it. And next Tad and Woody know, are the creators of pop-up video for anyone who doesn't know who we're referencing. Right. And they were big characters in their own right. Right. And uh, I got the gig and next thing you know I'm walking through 1515 Broadway in New York City and it was my first writing job in TV with an incredible group of people that uh, like my first writing job like this 
bullpen of writers went on to do amazing things, you know, what, like from The Sopranos to Better Call Saul to documentaries to uh, uh, The Daily Show. This was a great, great group of people. And, you know, it's just to watch where we've all gone. Our careers have just taken these kind of nonlinear paths. And or at least mine has. I can't tell you how much it's taking all my self-discipline not to run to my IMDb Pro and like create some kind of mind map of where everybody went because I don't think anybody's ever done that article, right? Like where did no. all the pop-up video writers go? So back to you though, I'm skipping ahead, but like how do you go from pop-up video to you're literally on the steps of the capital of Windows being smashed? It's happening hmm. right, like within inches of your face. How, did, how does one make that leap? How did you pick up the camera and become, go from being a writer to a director to becoming a photojournalist? When uh, I began to start directing TV shows and I, I wrote for a number of other shows, but I started directing. How did you make that leap though? That's a hard leap. And people are gonna be curious because that's not, many people will be told, across the board, like that's not possible. Stick to your lane or writers write, directors direct. You did, and I've had Mike Simon on the podcast too and he did the same thing. He went from being a producer to an extremely regarded director of, of incredible live events on TV. And mm. a lot of people said, you can't do that. And anyway, he was maybe VH1 before your time which is why I referenced Mike, but I'm getting at it. It's like, how did, how did you literally, was it because you wanted to do it and you told someone? And as simple as that, it's like you pursued something it became something that I, I, I knew I wanted to go through that door. Again, mm -hmm. I was just like, this looks like something I could do. I would watch and observe other directors on different sets. And I eventually started directing my own shorts. Mm. Um, and then, uh, then we raised money and I directed a, um, a documentary called American Cannibal about reality TV that ran in Tribeca and went to Showtime. And then from there, I'm like, so then I had a pedigree. So it was really, again, just looking the other way, diversifying and saying, that's a door I want to walk into. And mm. I just did. And- But the point you is know, you didn't wait for someone to open the door. You found the door, created the door, walked through the door. I guess I created the door. I, I think there was a confidence after I had done a couple of shorts where I was able to say, hey, look, I've been able to do this. Mm -hmm. And some people just took a chance. They knew me, they knew my work. And I'll say that when you're first starting out and you do get, you know, pigeonholed into like, you know, these, these people come, these kids who come out of college and they're PAs and they want to be, you know, producers. A lot of the jobs that we were in, you just, you couldn't become a producer. You had to leave the company, go somewhere else and get that job. And then you could come back mm -hmm. because it, it's, that they just weren't willing to say, yeah, I know you as a PA, or I know you as an assistant. That's all you can be. And it's the most unfair thing in the world. It's one of the most unfair thing, things I see when you are bringing people up in a system, like for Brain Games, for instance, we ran that show, um, you know, I think it was four seasons. A lot of my team came up, um, that was the first job. And we kept moving them up, moving them up. And when the show got uh, canceled, a lot of those people thought, like, what are we going to do? I've been on one show for three years. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But look at all that you've done. Because Brain Games did game shows, uh, uh, social experiments, hidden camera. They, they, they had news. They, you know, they had, we did everything. So they had 
a little piece of everything. They could go anywhere. And they did, and they moved on. And so they were able to, to acquire these skills on one show. And I think it was just about the executive producers there fostering that, you know, the ability to move up, letting these people come up the ranks and knowing that they are valued as mm-hmm. a team member. That's incredible leadership. And it was successful. So if I, I can go back to your original question, because I kind of steered off, um, your question was, how did I go from directing brain games to being on the steps of the Capitol? Um, and so becoming a director, uh, I got on a show called Cash Cab and I started directing Cash Cab, which was one of the funnest, best shows that I ever directed. And we would usually end around midnight, you know, one o'clock. And I would leave the offices and I'd walk down towards Zuccotti Park. And this thing called Occupy Wall Street was happening. And I just kind of was like looking around and came and the next night I was like, I'm going to go back down there. It was, a, it was very early on in those days and maybe like even the second day. And I went down there with the camera and I just started shooting and I'd shoot until like three in the morning. And then I'd have to go home because my wife works in radio and <laughs> she'd have to leave. We'd pass each other. Uh, she's leaving for her, her morning shift. I'm coming home. But I was just fascinated by it. And I just started to shoot a lot of video. You could shoot all day long there. This, this was such an energy, such a young, energetic movement. And then when I started to see what was being portrayed on the news as to what was happening down there, it wasn't what I was experiencing. So I started to write a bit and shoot. And then I just realized I have footage. I have so much footage here. I'm gonna pick up a still camera instead. And why is that? Why the shift to still photography? Because I, frankly, I didn't know what I was going to do with all this video. And I, and I, I, mean, I could have shot all day long. And I'm like, I'm just going to try stills. So I tried stills. And when things started to get rough down there, it just was a better way for me to move around. And this was what reality TV and directing live TV and cutting taught me to be a photojournalist. I was able to compose shots of chaos. And when there's chaos happening, I was able to like, it was this intuitive thing that you have when you're watching all these different monitors, when you're directing a TV show, going cut camera two, hold camera, and and you move around. This, I was doing this in my head and taking stills, like moving and composing these shots. And it's also that, let's say you're on a set and it's a three camera shoot and you have to look at the monitors. And a lot of the time, what you have to learn is, will this cut together? Meaning, does that go to this, to this, to that? And are we able to create a a good narrative of whatever we're shooting here, a good storyline? And will it be dynamic? Is it tight? Is it tight enough? Is it wide enough? Are we able to get both people on? on screen. So while you're shooting, sometimes you're like, we have to do it again. And they're like, well, we got it. I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm telling you, we need to do this again because we don't, we were both too tight here. We have no wide shot. So we'd run it through again. So you're also saying the power of being able to think as an editor in real time and as a director in real time and how that impacts when you're actually like shooting in real time. 
I, I think that's better for like the TV world. When I'm shooting, this kind of awareness that you have to have with some of the some of the stories that I've covered, and just having that kind of situational awareness of like mm-hmm. making sure you're not going to be hurt or somebody's not going to attack you, um, or you're not going to be arrested. And but then also you're covering an action and you're documenting history. So um, there is that, I, I think there is continuity to what I did as a TV director to what I do now as a photojournalist. That was actually honestly one of my questions. The amazing skill sets that you have, I mean, you just articulated, but it's to really stay calm under really super chaotic and often very dangerous situations, right? You've got this camera and it's, I mean, you've documented a lot of violence and, and you're in it. What does it feel like when that's happening? Or are you not aware of it, but you're aware of it? If, if I was just there without a job to do, I think I would probably be just frightened. I mean, you, you do have adrenaline like you did that, and you do have fear. And in those situations, the dangerous situations, fear is absolutely your friend. And you need, and when you're not scared, when you are not having, don't have that fearful and you're just kind of like wandering around, then that's the time to really take stock. The chaos that happens on a film set, I mean, that stuff happens too. And people are angry and yelling and screaming. And I just learned that, you know, if you are the director or you are the executive, they're going to follow your lead and you need to stay calm. And if you are the calmest person in the room there, and you're not gonna freak mm-hmm. out, that is just good leadership, I think. You know what, one of the things I'm also interested in, Michael, is like going back for a sec, is so, you know, when you first started documenting Occupy Wall Street, you're just like an interested citizen. So you become a citizen journalist mm-hmm. and you start posting, I remember on your social media, it's like, this is just what I'm observing. So one of the things I'm curious is when you went, made that leap, whether it's just emotional or a decision, whatever to become, there's, uh, this is more intentional. And I'm, I'm starting to change my own identity that I am, I am a journalist. So I'm curious about that for your own journey, but also on a practical level, like how do you, because now you start to get credentialed is what I'm getting at. And you start to develop relationships and you're building uh, however that works or coalitions with, you know, larger media organizations to push your work out to the greater world. So h- how does that all work? So the first part of the question is, when did I discover that I'm doing being a journalist? And it was very early on because I started posting these things and I would write a few pieces and I just sent it to a few papers and they're like, you want to continue covering this. And, um, you know, also being a documentarian, I think, you know, showing truth, story, truth and story coming together without conflating it in a way that, you know, I think reality TV does often. And I did not want to do that. And it was not to completely eschew and, and bash reality TV, but there are certain reality TV shows I just, that I just didn't like directing. I didn't like doing, and I wanted to get away from that. And I thought this was so much more interesting that people's stories that were, they couldn't tell because no one was listening. And a lot of the, I guess, news sources that you would have 
again, I was looking at it saying, this is not what I'm experiencing. And I would rather put the truth out as to what was really happening. Why, why did this happen? And asking those questions, you know, the journalistic questions, you know, why? Why, why is this happening? It's not just that that person was arrested, but why? Why is there social upheaval in Hong Kong? And um, instead of just giving these little sound bites that work well for TV, um, I was more interested in really telling story with film, video, and my words. And again, diversifying, <laughs> like diversify and have these irons in the fire, being able to shoot video, being able to sh shoot stills, being able to live stream and talk at the same time, being able to write pieces, being able to interview. And that's that ju these just became tools of the trade that um, kind of links up to where, where I decided to go, which is go into journalism. And you have to be diversified in these skills now. Uh, newsrooms are collapsing. We've lost, since the pandemic, I think one third of all newsrooms closed. You have hedge funds that are buying up newsrooms and, and just, uh, you know, vulture capital, capitalism. Vulture capitalism are just crushing these newspapers and then they fire everybody. So now there's no local newspapers um, or very few. And that is proven to say, you know, people don't vote. They don't know what's going on locally and they're less engaged. So, um, where does it all take me? I, I was wanting to uh, continue on my journey of being a journalist. And without, uh, I don't wanna say it's an addiction, it's fear of missing out. And this kind of fear of, of missing the story kind of circles back to, was I afraid? Or am I afraid during these things? It's more that I'm like, I don't wanna miss the shot. When I'm at the, Capital steps, I was on the east side doors and they started beating up the police. And I just, I couldn't believe what I was watching, one. And then two, they broke through the doors. And that was the one moment that I just sat back. I'm like, okay, this, do I go in? I've always been told you're gonna get shot if you go in like this. And then it, the energy of that crowd just came in and I just said, I'm, I, I don't wanna miss this. And it was a dangerous day just because I couldn't, they didn't like journalists. Um, so you kind of had to hide your press badge, open it up if there was police. It was, it's, it's complex. It's become more and more complex to be a journalist out on the field of what I do and what a lot of my colleagues do. We have this saying that, and I use this all the time, um, it's that you're under a whole lot of pressure. You're not paid very much. It's often very dangerous, but on the other hand, everybody hates you. <laughs> so, and that is what has, that, that's kind of like what it's been like for the past four or five years where both sides hate us, the cops don't like us, and they're trying to stop the first amendment from actually working and happening and, and crushing what is the shreds of our democracy that's left. I am so grateful for you every day. It's just hitting me. Do you ever think of it this as your calling, you've been tapped? My calling, no, I, my calling, I never even thought of it that way. I love doing it. I love meeting people. And, and that could be on the right, the left. I mean, I, 
the situations that I put myself in, I'm just shocked at sometimes is the way behavior happens and why this is happening on our planet. Why does, um, oh, wow. Who, what stands out the most that like really touched you or surprised you? Well, <laughs> I'll give one story that I think kind of encapsulates what sometimes it's like. I am in Alabama covering the Roy Moore election. Roy Moore was this uh, a right-wing con uh, conservative uh, running for, um, I think, governor. I, I got that wrong. But he was also had sexual charges against him. Um, and so I was, I was slated to go down there. I had an assignment to go down there. And we are, all the journalists are put back into what I call like a veal fattening pen. We are just shoved in this back room. We're in cages. We're all shoulder to shoulder trying to shoot this. And everybody else is basically turning around, you know, yelling and screaming at us. Part of my job is to go meet people. So I went around and I met this woman. She is um, a huge uh, Trump supporter, has all the mega gear on, big Roy Moore supporter. And I said, can we interview? Can I, can I interview for a bit? And she's like, you're fake media. And I just said, yeah, I'm not even here. I'm so fake. I'm not even here. Uh, and she kind of laughed and I kind of, we kind of had a little moment and I, she said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you. And we had a nice 15 minute conversation and I asked her about her life. Why is she here? Why does she support? And, and it turned into a great conversation. I came back into the veal fattening pen and I'm with all these journalists and no sooner she's right in front of me screaming and yelling and that we're fake and you guys stuck. And like, like it's just the dichotomy of this, of that, of, of that is just, um, I think there's good in people. And I don't know where we lost our ability to communicate. And seeing these kind of injustices on uh, just on the planet is why I do it. I think, I think we're all complicit in inequalities and injustices in the world. And, and we're complicit because um, we're either ill-informed or it's willful, or we'd rather just check out, you mm -hmm. know? But I think that's really what I use the camera for. Um, it makes us rec recognize that we have a social contract with each other to help each other. And by covering these, you know, I don't know, underreported, sometimes dangerous stories, and it's my hope that you know people will witness what they otherwise might not know is happening, and hopefully it will make them want to make a better world, and just create a better world for everyone. And you know, I don't want to show you what I experienced. I know that sometimes people are like, "Oh my God, what did you experience?" I want to show you that that moment through my photographs, and have you respond to them, and for you to go, "God, that could be my brother." That could be my sister. That could be my mom, mm -hmm. and and that's that's what kind of is the driving motivation to that, uh, to my loving doing this kind of work. So something you just said, you're not only informing or documenting, but you're humanizing the other, which is enormously missing in the conversation these days, where we're so fractured, right? So it's like having the conversation with the woman in Alabama 
right? That's like, it's, that's a human to human idea. She stops being other and she becomes a human being. And that's to me, the entry point where we can actually start bringing people back together. So I want to pick up on that because I really think it's important to your work. And I know you've mentioned, you know, why you went to Ukraine and, and I want to know what that was like. Everybody saw this coming and no one knew if Putin was going to invade. So I went about early February to see what was going on in Ukraine. Cause I really wanted to show the, I wanted to make it human. I didn't, it felt so theoretical to everyone. Everyone's mm -hmm. having these arguments of these big giant superpowers fighting each other. And, you know, Ukraine who is like going to be co-opted and, and I wanted to show the human side of it. I want to show the, the, the faces, the people that people could recognize themselves in uh, or their families in. So I went to Ukraine twice. I went right before the war started. And then when the war started, I went back. And I first went to Moldova where everybody was fleeing. And is right near Odessa, near the Eastern front of uh, Ukraine. And just watching these people pouring in over the border with everything that they could have. And, and we would always get this, this phrase, like, this is unimaginable. And I'm like, no, it's super easy to imagine. Imagine leaving your apartment with your, all your documents, your important documents, um, a bag of clothes and your pet, leaving, locking your door and never being able to go home again. That's pretty simple to understand. And that's what these people were doing. And I'm watching these people pour through and I'm with another photojournalist friend of mine. And he just looks at me and he's like, I can't believe what I'm watching. And I said, we can't talk about this now. We have to work <laughs> because it was just heartbreaking. And you do your job, you shoot these photos, you go back and it's really not until sometimes you're editing the photos before you send them off to the news desk but really you just have to stay focused. It's a job. And then sometimes you kind of just collapse and it's, it can be very emotional. I went to the Donbass region and met this family, uh, five kids all under the age of eight. And I had a translator with me and a fixer and we're all sitting there talking. And how this came about was my translator was a friend of someone here in Brooklyn. And she said, you must meet this man. Bogdan was his name. And I did. I called him up. He said, I can take you to certain places. And I was like, fantastic. So we would go. And I met this family. And we're talking through the translation. The word Brooklyn comes up. And then I see Bogdan get very confused. And he says, you know Maggie? And the husband says, Maggie... 18 years ago, adopted my sisters. This woman lived across the street from me in Brooklyn. <laughs> and I am like, what? It was the craziest, craziest story. And Maggie had gone there to adopt two Ukrainian twins. And there was a brother and the brother did not want to go. And it's illegal to separate families, but somehow they were able to do it. That was the brother. And he That's had now incredible. grown up and we we're just, just at a loss as to how this world was so small. And uh, to this day, this picture runs of the woman and one of her kids 
is uh, on the International Rescue Committee's website and they just use it as fundraising and her story. But they made it out, they made it to Poland. Mm. Do you end up staying in touch with people or is that too hard? I try to, it's, it's very, very difficult to leave a story when it's happening as it's still going on. I have friends that I was there with before the war, they're still there. They're not encumbered by family and uh, they're not married. So they're able to do that. And so it's a, it's a balance for me. And it's also what I'm putting my family through too. Like mm -hmm. they, it's very difficult for me to foist this kind of anxiety on them all the time. And they've, they, they've been through a lot. What's next for you? You're very hyper aware of where the world seems to need you. I would love to go back to Ukraine at some point and follow up some of these stories. There's, I mean, there's so much happening here in the United States, and I think it's going to have to be at least the midterm elections coming up. Um, not sure where I'm going to go for that, but it's, I mean, this it's very important. I've, I've spent more time in D.C. <laughs> these past, you know, five years. I mean, I used to live in D.C. and right before I moved to New York. I mean, I never did anything political when I lived down there, but now I'm just I'm down there all the time. So I want to ask you, it is so important that people see your work. So for anyone who isn't following and is, is just meeting you through the podcast, where can people find you and find your work and support your work? Super simple on Instagram. It's nigrotime, N-I-G-R-O-T-I-M-E. And then I have a website, nigrotime.com. And, you know, a, a lot of this, a lot of the work that I do uh, because the newsrooms are shrinking, you know, I do a lot of these things on spec. So uh, there's a coterie of people who love my work and they, they support me through different means, you know, and it's been a real kind of, again, diversifying. I just meet people and they're like, yeah, you can stay with me when you come down here. <laughs> Unless I have an assignment and the, and the newsroom is going to send me uh, somewhere, you know, you really don't have a budget for that kind of stuff. So I am so grateful you made the time. So yours is such an important story. Thank, Thank you. you. I appreciate you, Barbara. Oh, thank you. But I hope it inspires others to realize that, you know, we've seen what a difference it's made in so many places when people pick up a camera, even if it's their phone, to take a minute to document what's going on. So again, I thank you. And I want to thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. If you are interested in coaching yourself, please shoot me a note and please be sure to go to my website, ableintermedia.com and download my free ebook. 12 tips for success on camera. And as always, please be sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.